on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. My name is Michelle Witte. I'm here with my co-host, John Kiriakou. We have made it to Thursday. It's a slow week. You know, usually I say that the week flies by or where did the week go or whatever. And this one's a slog for some reason. John's hot. John's hot, everybody. It's 97 degrees today. It's hard to work when it's hotter than 95 degrees. It is not 97 degrees in the office, I will say. But step outside and it's pretty warm. Man, it's hot today. We do. We do have some news to talk about today. We have an interesting story about... um, I like I like media stories, John, and I, I. So this one is fun for me. This is a story about who is paying the fact checkers yes. that Facebook has partnered with to make sure yeah. you get only the truthiest truth about the Ukraine war. And what mm-hmm. a surprise! Five of nine are paid directly by the United States, yeah, and the important. rest are mostly taking money from different NATO mm-hmm. and EU organizations or uh, or countries. So, you know, scandalous. Yeah. But not surprising. Not at all. I mean, all fact checking is, you know, fact checking, like it's a, it's a nice idea, right? Have someone to keep an eye on things, but it is very rarely as unbiased as, uh, as people would like it to be. We are going to talk about that. We're going to talk about, uh, the post office and maybe a little bit of, um, good news that we missed earlier this spring. I don't know how we miss good news, John, but yeah, maybe the post the post office got some scary headlines about slashing 50,000 jobs. Is it in such bad shape as that, though? No. Maybe not. It's all a big lie. Maybe things are going to be okay. My You're brother-in-law going- works for the post office. Um, he's a kind of a senior security person mm-hmm. at one of the big, like, regional headquarter places mm-hmm, of the post mm-hmm, office. Mm-hmm. And he said that they're desperate to hire people. They can't hire enough people mm-hmm. because there's so much work yeah. to do. They're in hiring mode, mm-hmm. at least according to DeJoy. Yes. Uh, we are going to talk uh, more about the fallout of Nancy Pelosi's trip to China. And we're going to talk mm-hmm. specifically about uh, what it means inside China and for China's very uh, important and uh, political decisions. That are coming up over the course of the year. Also, you know, China's been engaged in a long process of of military um, modernization Mm -hmm. and uh, and development. And I am very curious what China's foreign policy looks like after 2027 and after 2035. You know, Mm -hmm. does, does China... How do we have to change our relationship with China when it has a military that we should perhaps be intimidated by? Yeah. I think this is an interesting question. I think this is why this rumor is going around that the U.S. is trying to provoke a war with China because China would be easier to beat now Mm -hmm. than it would be to beat in 20 years. Mm -hmm. I mean, I don't know if it's a rumor, just a a plausible explanation Mm -hmm. for the U.S.'s behavior. I don't know if it's true, but like— If it does seem inevitable, you know. Well, I think the reason why it's making the rounds like it is, is because it is believable. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, We are also going to talk about the incredibly elastic uh, definition of foreign agents and uh, some looking into how expansive that can be if you are from some places and how tiny, (laughs) tiny and extremely specific those rules are if you are from some other countries. That's right. What that does to how people uh, behave in the United States and how how they are treated, we're going to talk about this, you know, the the predictable outcome of uh, the U.S. Senate voting on 
welcoming Finland and Sweden I into NATO. I can't wait to talk about that. Yes, you're excited about that. But also some news that just caught both of our eyes before mm-hmm. we uh, were about to start the show. Saudi Arabia raising oil prices. Yeah. Raising oil prices across the board. For everybody. Yeah, raising them uh, to record levels for Asia. Right. But also raising them uh, for the U.S. for September. Yeah, this is a significant raise in oil prices. Um, I was, we were talking a few minutes ago uh, about different grades of of oil. Mm-hmm. There's extra light, or there's super light, extra light, light, medium, and well, heavy. Welter light, middle light, <laughs> right? Heavy light. And it depends on how much uh, uh, sulfur is in uh, the oil. The the purest, cleanest oil in the world, the oil that everybody loves to buy is Libyan oil. Mm-hmm. It has almost no sulfur in it. It requires very little refining. The dirtiest, most sulfur-heavy oil in the world is Venezuelan oil. And it, it there's so much sulfur in it that it actually requires specialty refining that's available almost exclusively in Texas. Mm. And that's why we continue to to uh, import Venezuelan oil, despite the fact that we have political problems with the Venezuelans. Mm. <laughs> the, the Saudis have various grades of oil. And what they've done today is they've put this extra, it's almost a surcharge mm-hmm. on their oil. Um, what makes it so strange is that They've put a surcharge on their oil across the board. So even their heavy, dirty, sulfur-heavy oil mm-hmm. is coming now with a with a $5.30 a barrel surcharge. Where, For the United States. Yeah, exactly. Where other countries that have heavy oil actually reduce the price by $2.80 a barrel. Mm-hmm. So, you know, this is... It's just so Saudi Arabia just going again. We're not going to yeah. do. We're yeah. not going to do They're anything nice for you right now. That's right. Yeah, yeah. That's the bottom line. Other than let you come and uh, you know s- sweat your behind off in in Jeddah for a couple of days for no reason. Hundred nine degrees. <laughs> I mean, it's not like it is not like it's that much better here, John. No. Also, of course, we just had a verdict in the. Brittany yeah. Griner trial in Russia, uh, sentenced to nine years. Yep. You know, uh, I think it was prosecutors told the judge she had de- deliberately smuggled drugs. Yes, I mean, which you know. is not true. Well, I don't know. I don't know if Kleiner meant to is. bring those cartridges in or she's not. She's clearly a political prisoner. For, I mean, I think that it is. Uh, it, I think that this and all other uh, sentences for having marijuana are ridiculous. Yes. Right? Not nine years for yes. having marijuana is an outrage. Right? I. You know. Yeah. As someone who uh, might have deliberately brought drugs across a couple of borders, you know, people do do that. People do take those risks and roll those dice. Sometimes sometimes it also does happen accidentally. Um, wouldn't ever, you know, would, yeah. wouldn't do it now. But like, you know, people do do those things also. And also because we do live in an increasingly permissive world. Right. Yes, and do. so sometimes you do think like. Well, well it's, it's, just no some, it's just some weed. Who cares? Yeah. You know what I mean? Right. Uh, why would anyone care about this? Also, maybe you think like, hey, I'm I'm a little bit important. Yes. And uh, and why would anyone want to cause such a fuss? Mm-hmm. And uh, it didn't, you know, whether or not those dice were rolled, that's what she's facing. Also seems like a trade has got to be coming. It's got to be soon. coming. It's got to be coming because the, the Russians want Victor Boot at least as much as we want Brittany Griner back. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, yeah, I would expect a trade is coming. Can we call him Das Boot? 
Yeah, right. I know it's not how you're supposed to say it, but that's just what happens in my head every time I see that name. Yeah. So, I mean, obviously, you know, it, it's a shame that any of these sentences are, are this uh, long. It is just ridiculous. It's terrible. It's, it's stupid. And I hope that I hope that swap comes very soon. She's I already been so there for, for what, four months now? When was she? Yeah, at least. Something like that. I forget when exactly four she was months. Um, yeah. caught. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, we have some other news to get to before we, we get into the big stuff. I, I wanted to bring an update from uh, Red Hill, right? You remember yes. we had talked about um, the Navy's fuel disaster there in Hawaii. So here is a fun headline. This is from military.com. Were dangerous forever chemicals released in the Red Hill fuel spill? The U.S. Navy isn't saying. <sighs> So there's an inspiring headline. Yeah. I mean, according to this story, uh, you know, we've spoken about the fuel leak that tainted the drinking water of thousands of military homes in Hawaii and threatened the aquifer for the entire island of Oahu. Mm -hmm. Um, The Navy's official report on the spill in 2021 found that after the fuel escaped from the uh, 80-year-old decrepit tanks that had been stored in. Yeah. It sat in a fire suppression system line for months, and it is these fire, these lines typically contain chemicals that are used in firefighting foams, and it is firefighting foams that were found to be the culprits in some of the original contamination issues when it comes to uh, the U.S. Armed Services and and PFAs, right? Uh People in Colorado Springs years ago. There was a scandal about Colorado Springs I remember. Uh, having water sources around that community yeah. tainted because of these firefighting foams that would wash off runways and wash into the soil and then get into, wow. into water systems. So, yeah, the, these are these PFAs, what are called forever chemicals that linger in the environment and we are learning accumulate in human beings as well <sighs> and are linked to different kinds of cancer, different kinds of birth defects, infertility. And probably lots of other issues that we will be finding out for the next decades. Mm -hmm. So in addition to leaking fuel into people's water, they might have also dosed them with these chemicals because these chemicals are pervasive in these firefighting foams. And of course, you have to say might because the Navy continues to pretend that this hasn't occurred to them, despite having been asked multiple times, hey, can you can you talk to us about this Um, during a House hearing July 19th? Uh, A representative from Hawaii asked a Navy official about the potential for contamination with these substances. Uh, He said that he has continuously asked the Navy the question since the spill, which was last year. Uh He asked it again during the hearing and uh, was told by the deputy chief of Naval Operations for Capabilities and Resources that he didn't know. And I'll get back to you, which is what they've been saying. The whole time, as of today, uh, the representative staff could not confirm whether the Navy had responded. So, you know, uh, Mm -hmm. you can take the Navy's word for it on this. I I would not in this situation. I would not. There was also a little bit of a scandal in Hawaii earlier this week when on Tuesday, uh, the University of Hawaii found traces of jet fuel still present in the Navy water system. And they put it out on on a website. And, and issued a news release Tuesday morning that they were going to have a news conference about it. And then pretty quickly, it was all taken down. And the university said it had been prematurely released by the communications department. Uh, Hawaii News Now reports that the University of Hawaii was told uh, that there were concerns about this dashboard that it's using to monitor and and present uh, results of water safety. Uh, Concerns raised by the Navy, the EPA, and the state health department 
The state health department apparently said that the way the university did testing could produce false positives. The scientists from the university say it's possible they detected fuel below regulated levels. They can't comment on implications to human health. They urge further testing. The Navy just says, nope, it's not there. We haven't found it. We've been testing constantly. So again, you know, anytime somebody argues against gathering information, mm-hmm. you know there's a problem. Yeah, I mean, it's, uh, I would not trust any of these. I wouldn't trust no. uh, the Navy for sure. The Hawaii Department of Health is a little bit different. I mean, it was their members who'd been advocating for a really long time uh, to decommission this this fuel storage site. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so they're right. not quite quite the biggest baddies in my book in this situation. Yeah. We have the Iran negotiations resuming in other headlines. Do you expect anything to happen? I honestly have no idea. I really don't know. I really do not know what to think here. I don't either. Um, I don't understand, and I know I've said this with guests in the past, but I don't understand why, why Joe Biden doesn't want to try to save something that ought to be a part of his legacy. Mm-hmm. You know, we we talked about opening diplomatic relations with the Cubans. Mm-hmm. They've been in the toilet since Donald Trump was elected. Biden's yeah. done nothing to to fix it. We talked about Trump withdrawing from the JCPOA, and Biden has been doing nothing but pointing the finger at the at the Iranians mm-hmm. for the fact that the United States hasn't reacceded to the JCPOA. Mm-hmm. I just don't understand what the problem is. No, I don't either. But I will say, you know. I- I was sort of optimistic about a return to the agreement when Biden came in because I had exactly the same thoughts. But there were people who were warning from the beginning and pointing in particular at Blinken and going, this is not a man who's going to want to do that. Nothing in his history says that Uh that this is going to be a priority for him. Uh You guys are being too optimistic. And uh, and maybe these people will have been right. I I find it. Yeah, I I don't like this narrative that the U.S. is also starting to put out. It was um, McGurk. Right. On a call earlier this week, right. he was saying it's, it, you know, it's unlikely we're going to get a, do, a deal, but it's because we wanted a better deal, guys. We right. wanted a longer and stronger deal and it's they wouldn't nonsense. agree to it. Yeah, that's nonsense. So I don't know. I was I was a lot more hopeful when negotiations um, began. And I, I have to say, I, I don't feel particularly hopeful right now. Yeah, I have to admit that I don't either. As much as I want to be hopeful, there, there's no reason to be. You know who is pretty hopeful right now? Mm. Paul Pelosi. Yeah, Paul Pelosi has his own serious problems. Paul Pelosi pleading not guilty <laughs> to DUI. Uh, he got into an accident in the end of May. Prosecutors say he drove under the influence. He was involved in a car accident. He uh, had a blood alcohol level of 0.08%. Um, yeah. He's he's uh, pleading not guilty. He's going to go to court, I guess, or hope that it's going to be dismissed. Of course, you know, Paul Pelosi can afford to have a lawyer go to court for him in a DUI case, you, you know, know, which is just like, like we said, this happened in Napa County. Mm-hmm. This is how Napa County finances itself mm-hmm. with charging people with DUI because there are hundreds of wineries there. Mm-hmm. People go wine tasting. All the time, seven days a week, there are... I've been wine tasting in Napa Valley myself. Me too. And police traps everywhere. Mm -hmm. And they get you for DWI or DUI, whatever they call it in California. Mm -hmm. And uh, (laughs) Whatever they call it in California. (laughs) Whatever fancy California name it has. And, you know, they they fine you $1,500 and they suspend your license for a year. So just pay the money and move on. You're worth 
tens of millions of dollars at least. John. Just pay the money. Don't you know who he is? Oh, see, that's, that's it. That's, <laughs> that's, that's the, the key right there. Yeah. Uh, we have a couple more. I got a story about the F-35s to tell you about. I got a story about Cracker Barrel. We can talk about. Oh, Cracker the, Barrel. I saw that. This is hilarious. We might have to save it for a little <laughs> later. We've got, we've got Pelosi versus the White House on, you know, who yeah. was leaking information about her trip. Uh, I think we can save that because I know we have our next guest on the line. So maybe we'll take a break and get into some of the serious Sounds stuff. Sounds good. First and then. And then fun later. Okay. We're going to take a quick break here on Political Misfits. We're on Radio Sputnik. We're live in D.C. We'll be right back. Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm John Kiriakou, here with Michelle Witte. The focus of the war in Ukraine appears to be turning to the south, as Russia masses troops there, according to today's New York Times. The Ukrainian military had been pushing toward the Russian-occupied city of Kherson, but the Russians have reinforced the area with more troops than the Ukrainians had anticipated. That fight is expected to begin very soon. And there's a 1,500-mile arc of fighting that stretches from the Donbass to Crimea. Meanwhile, Amnesty International released a report today concluding that Ukraine is violating international law by using schools, hospitals, and residential areas as military sites and launching attacks from populated residential areas. The report also condemns Russian attacks on Ukrainian civilians. And the U.S. Senate voted last night 95 to 1 to ratify the treaty that would have Sweden and Finland join NATO. Missouri Republican Senator Josh Hawley, he of the raised fist and the quick run to safety, was the only no vote. Kentucky Republican Senator Rand Paul voted present. I mean... Cowardly, really. <laughs> Look, if you're going to make a political point, make your point. Make your point. But don't... Be wishy-washy on it. Mm -hmm. We're joined by Jim Jatris. Jim's a former U.S. diplomat and former senior foreign policy advisor to the Senate Republican leadership. Welcome back, Jim. Always good to have you. Hi, John. Good to be with you and Michelle again. Jim, it is summertime, which is prime warfighting time. We've talked a lot about the Donbass in the past several weeks. We talked about the Donbass with you every time you're on the show. But now the New York Times is reporting that the focus of the fighting in Ukraine is going to move to the south, especially around the city of Kherson. Um, I think this can be seen in two ways. One, the Russians are pleased with the progress that they've made in the Donbass, or two, that they're worried about maintaining control of Kherson. What are your thoughts? Well, a couple of things. When we say the South, I think there's actually two things going on. One is more real than the other. Uh, one is what the Russians are doing in advancing on Bakhmut, which is essentially going to be the last stand of Ukraine's Donbass army. I think that's going to happen. As far as uh, Kherson, which is a little bit further to the West, I will see. I mean, the waiting for this Ukrainian offensive has been like waiting for Godot. And uh, they, they've been talking it up, talking it up, talking it up. We'll see what exactly happens, if anything. 
Um, there is uh, reports I've seen that the Ukrainian military commander, uh, General Zaluzhny, has advised against this, uh, that uh, Zelensky is going to head with it anyway. I don't think they have the uh, artillery, the ammunition, the armor, or frankly, the men for a successful assault on Kherson. And I think if it turns out to be a dud, which I think it will be, that will simply open the door for maybe the next phase of the Russian operation toward Nikolaev and uh, Odessa. Ah, well, you've anticipated my next question. All of my Ukrainian friends are worried about Odessa. And, you know, every once in a while, you'll you'll see that the Russians have uh, fired a rocket at Odessa or there's, you know, some some kerfuffle of some sort. Can you foresee um, a, a point in the near future where there's an actual attack on Odessa? That's really what the Ukrainians are worried about. I, I don't think we'll necessarily see a, an attack on Odessa, uh, rather than that the um, Russian forces would move from their current locations north of Crimea to the north and to the west toward Transnistria. And that would essentially cut Odessa off from the rest of Ukraine. Just right. for example, in the uh, the northeast, I don't expect them to actually launch an assault on the city of Kharkov, but rather simply surround it, make it impossible for the Ukrainians to defend it, and then just wait. And I think that would be a much better strategy. Unlike Mariupol, which is really the only place they had to destroy from uh, just purely military perspective uh-huh. because it was so strategically necessary. That's not true in the case of Odessa or, or for that matter, Kharkov. They could afford to wait. Very interesting. Tom Friedman of The New York Times said earlier this week that the White House is disappointed in the leadership of Ukrainian President Zelensky, who has spent time recently doing a very nicely laid out photo shoot for Vogue magazine and and appearing uh, uh, virtually uh, in speeches all around the world, among other things. In the meantime, the $40 billion aid package for Ukraine that Congress approved a couple of months ago runs out next month. I just saw that this morning. The Ukrainians are probably going to want a lot of money in addition to what we've already given them. And Congress seems ready to provide it. There doesn't seem to be any really concerted opposition to all of these Ukraine appropriations in either House of Congress. Um, what do you expect to come out of the White House with all of this in, in mind? I expect the White House and the Congress will find the money. Hey, if it's a question for the Ukrainians or, for that matter, the big banks, there's no, there's always Amen. money. If it's a lot of other things, oh, gosh, you know, things are so tight. We have to worry about the deficit. I think they'll come up with the money. I don't think there's any question about that. As far as uh, disappointment in uh, Zelensky— Look, I mean, uh, Ukraine has been fighting a propaganda war since the very beginning. Yeah. Or they're winning, no question about it. The actual war itself, not so much. And so uh, I, I think that they're sort of married to this guy. Now, there's been some speculation that maybe they want to shuffle him out of the way. I don't know if that happens before or after they shuffle Joe Biden out of the way. That's, right. That's a whole other story. But, uh, you know, the, the, the prospects that they could do a DM, for example, like what happened in Vietnam, uh-huh. try to put somebody more effective there. Is always possible, but you know, given that he's such a media star, you yeah. know, Turkey, he really is. Blah blah blah. I'm not so sure. He really is. Hey, um, I I I talked to a, a friend of mine who I haven't spoken to in six or eight months, and um, 
don't know. I didn't know it. I should say why he sort of dropped out of touch like he did. And he he got in touch with me a couple of days ago and said that he's been uh, fighting the Russians in Ukraine. And uh, he just got back to Vienna. He's there on R&R. So I called him and I said, you've you've actually been fighting Russians in Ukraine. And he said, no, that's just what I tell everybody. He said, they don't even give us guns. You know, this international um, uh, foreign legion or whatever it's called, the international legion. Uh, He said it's it's totally uh, for propaganda. The U.S. is paying all of their salaries. None of it comes from the from the Ukrainians, he said. Uh, they give them guns, but they don't give them any ammunition. And their job is just to sort of stand guard duty and make it look like there's this massive wave of international support, so much so that people are actually volunteering to go to uh, Ukraine and, and fight the Russians. How long do you think this lasts, Jim? This seems so silly to me. Uh, And then in the meantime, you have a couple of, of, you know, idiots who somehow got themselves to Donbass and have been killed in the process. Jim, as I said in the opening, the Senate voted 95 to 1 to approve Sweden and Finland as new members of NATO. Only Josh Hawley voted no. Uh, We would certainly expect an abstention from Rand Paul. At least I, I actually did. I just figured he would abstain, and he did. But can you explain Holly's position to us uh, from a political perspective? Is he just trying to set himself apart within the Republican Party with an eye toward the future? Or does he have some ideological reason for voting no on something like this? I think it's both of those. He had a piece on the national interest of yesterday, the day before. He was on Tucker Carlson's show last night explaining his position. And all I could tell that he was really saying was— well, whereas everybody else is saying Russia, 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 he's saying China, 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 that we should not be worried about expanding NATO and spending more money on the military in Europe when the Europeans are not willing to pony up when we really have to worry about China, China, China. Mm. So I, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of dismaying to me that the same way that the Democratic Party is obsessive about a Russian boogeyman yeah. to the Republican Party is worried about a Chinese boogeyman. Totally agree. Jim, let's talk for a second about this uh, Amnesty International report. The group didn't pull any punches in criticizing both the Ukrainians and the Russians. What Amnesty is accusing the Ukrainians of doing is exactly what the Iraqis did uh, during the Gulf War and the Iraq War. Uh, But is there any way to force changes? It seems like, you know, countries are going to use schools and hospitals and residential areas uh, for their own tactical advantage, uh, international norms and laws be damned. So what happens now? I don't think much, to tell the truth. Again, back to the propaganda war, having the Russians kill civilians because you locate uh, military assets in residential neighborhoods. Mm-hmm. Good footage, but good propaganda. And if that's the only card you've got to play, then play it. I think they'll continue to do so. Um you know, I, 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 you know, I, I want to give at least a, you know, one cheer for uh, Amnesty for doing this. Although this has been patently clear from the very beginning of the war, maybe they're simply trying to, you know, keep some semblance of uh, even handedness on this. But I don't expect it to make any difference. And and would you say the same uh, with the Russian reaction? Should we expect the Russians even to bother reacting to this, or do you think they'll just ignore it? Well, I know that, for example, the bit, the bit about the you know that prison that was that was hit by somebody. Right. 
Russians and the Ukrainians are both uh, accusing the other, and each of them has demanded an impartial investigation, which I expect will not happen. Um, I, I, I think the Russians understood very early on they can't win the propaganda war, that that is the one war the Ukrainians can and will win. Uh, but that at the end of the day, um, Winning on the ground trumps everything. So I think they're just going to grit their teeth, press forward, let people say whatever the hell they want, and it won't make any difference in the end once you win. Mm -hmm. Brittany Griner was sentenced today to nine years in prison. Uh, Everybody is expecting a prisoner exchange that would see Griner and Paul Whelan uh, return to the U.S. in exchange for Victor Boot. Uh, The Russians have said they also want a prisoner being held in Germany, but the U.S. says that it has nothing to do with that. How do you see this playing out? Um, you you were on the Hill, I'm sure, when uh, prisoner exchanges were affected. Uh, when do you think this exchange might take place? You know, a lot of us thought it would happen quickly or maybe right after Griner was formally convicted and sentenced. Uh, but now maybe it looks like uh, like the Russians want the Americans to cool their heels for a little while. That's my impression, and they may not want to move forward the exchange at all. Let the Americans squirm. Mm-hmm. Let's remember that I think it was only about a week or so ago that Lincoln wanted to call Lavrov for the first time, really since the war started, that they would have talked, and maybe that that's also a pretext just to open up the uh, lines of communication. And I remember when that was uh, first reported that Blinken wanted to call Lavrov, Lavrov's answer was, yeah, that's fine. We'll talk. Um, I'm kind of busy now, but I'll get around to it. And I don't think they're in any kind of hurry. It is a little odd to float an exchange idea like this so publicly and try to put the Russians on the spot, which I don't think they appreciate. Usually, if you're going to do something like this, you work it all out in the details in in private between the working levels. Absolutely. And it's announced when it happens uh, for for Washington to come out and say, oh, this is the deal we're proposing to the Russians— is unprofessional, to say the least, and I wouldn't be at all surprised if the Russians don't go along with it. As far as the guy being held in Germany, uh, look, the Germans will do what they're told. Yeah. Um, if, if the Americans wanted that person released, I guess he was there for assassinating a, a Chechen terrorist. That's right. Uh, they released them. I, you know, if Germans don't care about foreigners committing rape all over Germany, I don't know why they care about an assassination. I, I totally, completely agree. Um, I want to I want to ask you about uh, something a little bit peripheral to the Nancy Pelosi uh, trip to Asia. We're going to address that later in the show with another guest. But I want to ask you from a political perspective. I've been I've been puzzled by the reaction in official Washington to Pelosi's trip. First of all, foreign policy is the exclusive domain of the uh, executive. But there are congressional delegations that go to countries all around the world all the time. It's just a normal thing. Uh, we, we know that when Pelosi initially announced her trip, the president said, well, he hemmed and hawed and said that he didn't really think this was a good idea. And the Pentagon didn't think this was a good idea. Um, I think that's probably nonsense because she went on military planes. And in order to even have the congressional delegation approved, she had to get country clearance from the senior diplomat in country, and she had to get the approval of the State Department desk. So there were multiple points along the the line of planning of this trip where bureaucrats in the foreign policy establishment could have blocked the trip. Certainly, the president could have picked up the phone and said, Nancy, I think this is a bad idea. 
or Nancy, uh, the situation is very sensitive right now. Uh, you would you would be causing us a setback by taking this trip. But the White House didn't do that. And the State Department did nothing to stop her. So what do you make of this? What what lesson are we supposed to take from this? Either Joe Biden looks weak or Biden wanted her to go to put pressure on the Chinese, but wanted to make it look like this was something that she was doing on her own, maybe so as not to provoke them. Otherwise, I just can't figure out why this trip took place. Oh, I think you just answered your own question. If they didn't want it to take place, they would have told her in no uncertain terms, don't go. We will not provide support. Mm -hmm. And like you said, the president makes foreign policy, not the Speaker of the House. They didn't do that. They wanted it to look like, oh, gosh, she's doing it in honor, just like you said. So I don't think there's any question. Yeah, of course they wanted to put the, uh, the Chinese on the spot. I think they felt that the Chinese would not respond for all of the, the mobilization mm -hmm. of is on the mainland and so forth, and uh, they could humiliate the Chinese. And, and by the way, some people are saying that's exactly what happened. I noticed some commentators like Andrei Markyanov and others are saying, oh, well, you know, you shouldn't threaten, you shouldn't pull the gun out and show it on the table if you don't mean to use it. And they, they, they got uh, punked by the Americans. I'm not sure that's right. I, I, I'm still waiting for the other shoe to drop. My guess is the Chinese will do something fairly dramatic. I don't know what it is. We're seeing this, these military exercises around uh, Taiwan, which are essentially a, almost a blockade in terms of the, a temporary shutdown of, uh, of traffic to and from uh, Taiwan. Something more dramatic than that might happen. So we'll see who ends up getting humiliated here first. Um, but I, I think this, this thing is far from over. I want to ask you one uh, political uh, question, too, Jim. The, the polls have been all over the place over the last couple of weeks. We've seen generic congressional polls, just a generic Republican over a generic or, and a generic Democrat. Uh, as, as disparate as the Republicans up by 12 points, which is landslide territory, and uh, today the Democrats up by seven points. Uh, We've we've talked about this in the past. The the House is probably lost to the Democrats, if only because of redistricting, reappoint, reapportionment, and maybe a little bit of gerrymandering. What do you see in the Senate so far? There was an interview yesterday with Mitch McConnell in which he said that he just wasn't sure that the Republicans were going to be able to pull off what he thinks would be a win of two seats, assuming that the Republicans lose Pennsylvania. What do you think is going to happen? And I, I recognize this is an early stage. Yeah, I, I, John, I really can't answer for the, uh, that for you. And frankly, I don't think anybody who says that they can is. Uh, <laughs> you know, I mean, it's just, it's just it's too, there are too many variables, not enough constants, and uh, we're just going to have to wait and see. I, 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 I'm not even sure the Republicans will win the House. I think they probably will. Mm -hmm. Uh, the the Senate, I think, it really is a toss up because hey, you can't gerrymander a state. No. When you're talking about no. race, and uh, each one of these states is very different. The candidates uh, are very different, and uh, we'll have to see. And plus, you know, I, there are many things that happen between now and November in terms of, you know, is COVID going to come back? Or, you know, sure. the lockdowns, there will be a war somewhere. Or we're we, we going to attack Iran. What's next? You know, so I, I don't really think we can we can say with any degree of certainty what's going to happen. Although, I back to what I said earlier, I do think that the real news— coming into the fall at some point is going to be how in the wide world of sports do they find an excuse to get rid of Joe Biden? Because they really have to do that. Yeah, 
I think they do have to do that. Well, that was the voice of Jim Jatras. Thank you, Jim, for joining us. Jim is a former U.S. diplomat and former senior foreign policy advisor to the Senate Republican leadership. You're listening to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik. We'll take that first short break. Maybe it's the second. It's the second short break. And we're going to come back with our next guest. So stay tuned. and culture without the red and blue treatment. My name is Michelle Witte. I'm here with my co-host, John Kiriakou. And we're continuing our conversation about the, you know, very important and very inflammatory trip that Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi took to Taiwan. Uh, But, you know, we have been talking a lot about the fallout, uh, the sort of geopolitical implications, the domestic political implications in the United States. But we have not really gotten into how it has played in China. And in particular, you know, what are the perceptions in China about how President Xi Jinping has handled it? Um, you know, there was some pretty overblown speculation, in my opinion, about, you know, China interfering with Pelosi's plane or something. You know, that didn't happen. But I want to ask, you know, how Xi's response to this crisis has gone down among the Chinese leadership and among the Chinese people. And so here for this conversation is Cynthia Chung. She's president and co-founder of the Rising Tide Foundation, and she's a writer for the Strategic Culture Foundation. Cynthia, thanks for being here. Glad to be on. So, you know, China is going to hold its annual party Congress meeting later this fall. President Xi is expected to seek and to win reappointment as party leader for an unprecedented third term. And, it, you know, it would seem that his handling of a, a pretty uh, significant provocation by the United States could have a, an effect on on his political future. And so I wonder, you know, if you think his handling of this situation so far uh, has helped his chances or, or hurt them of continuing in the leadership position. Um, I, uh, President Xi Jinping has about a 90% approval rating in China, so um, the support is very strong already for him. And, um, you know, they, they do this by a very different sort of system, but the, the citizens of China are constantly giving their feedback. And, um, and so this approval rating process is actually pretty accurate because they're constantly measuring what people are thinking about this or that and, and what their complaints are. Mm-hmm. In terms of uh, how he's been handling the Pelosi visit, um, I think that they're they're happy. I don't think anyone wants to go to war with uh, Taiwan. I mean, certainly China does not want to have to deal with uh, any kind of situation with Taiwan uh, with a military uh, intervention, which it may come to that if uh, certain things happen. I mean, when Pelosi visited, you had U.S. Navy destroyers uh, there as well, mm-hmm. along with uh, aircraft, uh, military aircraft around her. So um, obviously, there was maximum provocation to try to cause some sort of um, aggressive reaction on China's part, and I think China did well not to do that. Um, and I think that there is a 
you know, they're trying to blame China basically with this uh, so-called blockade around uh, Taiwan um, to try to get the other countries around China to basically get on board with this anti-China um, situation. But the reality is that China is the the economic powerhouse in uh, Asia, which means that uh, that's a positive thing. These countries um, would not have economic prosperity if it wasn't for trade with China. So it's a very positive relationship economically. Mm -hmm. And um, it would be economic suicide for any of these countries, let alone also military suicide, to try anything out. And I think that uh, Pelosi's visit in South Korea has shown already that nobody really wants to go along with uh, what the U.S. is quite, I find, transparently desperate to try to um, puff up in, in Asia right now. Yeah, but let's go into that a little bit further, right? Talk to me more about the, the regional response, right? She's she's in South Korea. Uh, I think we've noted on, on the show she's—Pelosi uh, is not meeting with the president of South Korea. She's met with her counterpart there. I mean, you know— She's also not the president, so I'm not sure how much of a snub this is. It seems to at least be a, a little bit of one. Um, there's been speculation, even in U.S. mainstream media, that Pacific partners of the U.S. were not very pleased with the trip and would like to have been consulted a little bit more. So can you can you go into a little bit more detail about, you know, yeah, what, what this fallout might be for some of uh, key East Asian or Pacific partners for the U.S. who might have had their feathers ruffled over the U.S., you know, instigating such a provocation at this time? Well, again, there was that recent RAND report where they were trying to get uh, five of their treaty allies to host the offens offensive missiles, uh, Australia, South Korea, Japan, um, Thailand, and so forth. And um, the RAND report itself concluded that it was very highly unlikely that any of these countries would agree to it, but that Japan would be the most likely. And Japan is the most concerning, even um, compared to, to Australia, in this, because they did uh, reinterpret their constitution in 2014, which before that, um, they would not they did not seal themselves into going to war in aid of an ally. But now that they have reinterpreted their constitution in 2014 to, to, to do this, and they have recognized Taiwan officially as an ally two years ago, there could be a possible escalation um, from that standpoint. Also, you know, Japan has never really had sovereignty after World War II. They have uh, a lot of U.S. troops that have been stationed in Okinawa. It's like something like 56,000 um, for all of that time period uh, up until today. Um, and, and, you know, the United States also has some troops in, in Taiwan, despite um, it being part of China, which uh, people often uh, forget. And, um, you know, the Taiwan Strait, uh, basically, you know, if Taiwan's going to have these U.S. Navy destroyers around that area, China is going to have no choice but to, I think, take some of the Taiwan Taiwanese islands, like, right by their mainland mm -hmm. to secure that. But, um, you know, there's really no support. I think they're trying to organize the ASEAN countries as well against China. But again, there's no future. Like, because of what happened in Ukraine, people in Taiwan are not even very excited over any kind of outcome, mm -hmm. because it was clear that the U.S. and NATO abandoned the Ukrainians in any kind of promises or illusions that they had. So I don't think anybody thinks that it's a, it's a very good idea to side with the Americans, but if it's going to be anybody, it's likely to be the Japanese. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm.
The other thing that I think gets forgotten about is that Taiwan and China have a very close trade relationship, right? China is by far Taiwan's biggest trade partner. Um, you know, they do, they do, you know, they, they have educational exchanges, you know, they do business with each other. Like these are not uh, two entities that are estranged. And so I wanted to ask about, you know, China's suspension of some trade with the island, right? They're blocking some ex exports, they're blocking some imports. I wonder how long this will last. And how much visits like the one that Pelosi just undertook actually affect the real on the ground sort of economic relationship between China and Taiwan? Because I think, you know, if, if you're not sort of in the weeds on this topic, you would think, oh, well, China and, Ta China and Taiwan, they're basically at war. They don't interact with each other. And it's simply not the case. Uh, so I wonder if you could talk about, you know, how, how much their relationship is affected by um, events like these. And, you know, how much China sort of is not doesn't seem to be choosing to really pu punish Taiwan for this. Yeah. Um, you know, right now, China has 49 uh, percent of Taiwan's exports go to China and about 23.8 percent of Taiwan's imports. So um, we people have to, again, remember that the Sunflower Movement that happened in Taiwan in 2014, which was about an economic deal, again, like what happened in Ukraine, um, in this case, it was tai Taiwan's further reunification with China economically with a free trade deal, which makes sense because they're all a part of the, the same—Taiwan is a part of China. Um, and so the NED was uh, the one that organized the Sunflower Movement, just as they did in Ukraine with the Maidan uh, Revolution. And uh, what you're seeing now is that China doesn't need to invade Taiwan if there even was like a concern coming out of, uh, of, of Taiwan. They can just basically uh, have Taiwan submit through um, not trading with them. But at the same time, the Chinese view the people of Taiwan as Chinese. They are their brothers and their sisters. So this isn't something of like a foreign country that you want to just, you know, destroy or, or um, you know, completely in invade and, and have the people hate you. You want to maintain a good relationship in the long term. And that's uh, China's priority in this. Um, unfortunately, you know, with the president, uh, the first president of the, the DPP in um, from 2000 to 2008, he was the one who introduced the new education system, which is, again, we saw with the Hong Kong protests, mm -hmm. the education system of the youth, it really turned themselves against China. And that was what happened in Taiwan, too. So it's really just a problem with the youth in Taiwan who've received an NED education, where they're extremely anti-Chinese. But most people in Taiwan consider themselves Chinese, and they want to have peace with China. I also want to ask about how... China's foreign policy could be uh, evolving or affected by its uh, program of military modernization, right? China's been engaged in major military modernization and restructuring projects for much of the last decade, and it has phase deadlines coming up in 2027 and in 2035. In 2027, it's, you know, goals of uh, incorporating AI into military platforms and aligning China's economic development with the improvement of its military. Um, in 2035, this whole modernization and restructuring um, of the military is to be complete. And I do wonder, you know, uh, 
I don't think China, of course, does not compare to the United States when it comes to a habit of using your military to achieve your your economic and foreign policy goals. But I wonder if we would see a different response to something like this if and when China feels that its military is on par with or superior to its its peers. Right. How, how much in the next decade should we expect uh, military modernization to maybe be reflected in in the way China tolerates uh, things like this visit and maybe tries to achieve foreign policy goals? Well, uh, if you look at Chinese history, they've never had um, a—even when their military was at their peak and, and they were actually visiting Africa, um, it's on the historical record that they never tried to colonize any of those regions, even though they were much more advanced than the areas that they were, um, you know, exploring. And instead, it was always about uh, exchange of ideas and, and exchanges of, of culture. And that is really a part of the Chinese character. And I would encourage people to maybe try to get to know a little bit of what is Chinese culture, because when you understand the culture of a people, you really do understand the mindset of a people a lot better. Um, the other thing is that most of China's uh, submarine force they're all around China, right? And the U.S. has actually um, complained about this because the U.S. has their submarines all over the place. They've really stretched themselves uh, thin uh, around the world, and you can, you know, see that that's more of an imperial sort of uh, strategy. Whereas China has everything in a more defensive stationing. But that also means that if you would want to attack China, it would be very difficult because they have everything stationed there. I don't think China has any interest in this, um, you know, in building up their military capability to try to be imperialistic. It's uh, basically to have the right to self-determination, which has been China's uh, number one goal since the formation of the People's Republic of China. I'm curious what you think then, you know, how is China going to attempt to prevent provocations like this from happening again in the future, right? If the general sentiment is that it was wise to show some restraint. China's now with these drills around Taiwan, you know, uh, showing what its military is is capable of at this moment. Um, but, you know, if you don't want to see the Speaker of the House visiting Taiwan every other year, you know, what what would China attempt to do other than, you know, people thinking, you know, in, interfere, shooting down a plane or something like that, which I think is uh, really kind of beyond imagination right now? <laughs> well, I think that time is on China's side. And um, right now, China is on its way up, and the United States is on its way down economically. There, in a certain amount of time, the United States will simply not be able to compete with China, which is a much bigger country, which has focused its uh, priorities on actually building things towards a future that has prosperity instead of just being some kind of a military industrial complex that isn't even caring for the welfare of their own people. Um, so it's time is on their side. In, in two years' time, about Taiwan will have another election. They will likely vote, very likely vote out the DPP. And there's no—honestly, Pelosi doing all of this is— you know, the neocons would like us maybe to believe that this is somehow like stretching, flexing muscles or anything like that. But honestly, it looks extremely unprofessional and desperate. That was Cynthia Chung. She's president and co-founder of the Rising Tide Foundation. She's a writer for the Strategic Culture Foundation. Cynthia, want to tell our listeners where they can go to find your work? 
Uh, yeah, you can find all of my work at Through a Glass Darkly on my Substack page. Oh, very cool. D- uh, d- uh, there's a third option. There you go, Cynthia. <laughs> Thanks for joining us. Really appreciate it. Thank you. John, we have a couple of minutes left before we take that hard one o'clock break. And I didn't know if you want to talk about the New York Times uh, doing CNN dirty, reporting on how their their ratings are down and their profit- profitability's down, right? That's a... You know, the New York Times ran a piece several weeks ago saying uh, that this new leadership, which is more right wing than any of CNN's previous uh, leadership... Mm-hmm. Uh, is taking the numbers very, very seriously, mm-hmm. that CNN's ratings are as low as they've ever been. Mm-hmm. The only time CNN's ratings jump are during a time of war or a crisis, like a hijacking or a plane crash or something like well, that. Well, you'd think that Ukraine would be a boost for them right and, now. And it was for a little bit, mm-hmm. and people just got tired of it. So the point of the New York Times piece was that these staples of CNN, like Jake Tapper, for example, or Don Lemon, mm-hmm. uh, their jobs are not secure. Mm-hmm. And uh, we may be approaching a point where everybody just gets thrown out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it, it talks about, you know, the, the new approach by Chris Licht, who took over mm-hmm. uh, as chairman in, well, I think, February? A couple, February? Of, months a couple months ago. A couple yeah. months ago. A couple months ago. Saying... You know, he he wanted CNN to pitch advertisers on the network's pristine bland, brand. Bland, pristine bland is also pretty good. <laughs> pristine brand, not just their audience size and saying, you know, I don't want producers making decisions based on what they think will rate. Um, right. Yeah. I mean, everybody, you know, of course he would say that. I'm not sure if he's going to be singing the same tune as, uh, you know, the ratings continue to go down and they're going to fall below a billion dollars in um Profit this year for the uh-huh. first time the first in time. five years. Yep. Which, I mean, that's a lot, right? Yeah. I don't know. Like, this is like dang, oh, less than a billion. Less than a billion. Oh my gosh, how terrible. Yeah. So, but that's been followed up with Variety saying, as you've just said, um, all of these, all of these sort of anchors, the face of CNN, they might not. Mm-hmm might not be that face for much longer if they're trying to change what that face means. But yeah. it is also not just CNN, right? Like post- no, Trump was it's... Trump was huge for all of these cable news, right? Yes, so huge. everyone's ratings have declined post Trump. Uh it does seem like CNN's have declined the most though. Yes. So, congratulations, fellas. I'll admit that I stopped watching CNN. I don't watch MSNBC just because I have my own personal problems with MSNBC's mm-hmm. anchors. Um but I, I actively seek out, you know, BBC International, Al Jazeera. I watch the Greek news from Greece. I spend the extra 17 bucks a month to get the Greek channel on cable. I'm rolling. Yeah, I love it. <laughs> I love it. And then they've got soap operas and movies and concerts. It's yeah. awesome. Wait, did you see the statistic of how much their viewership is down since no. um, this quarter? Wait, Uh-oh. wait. Uh, from a year ago. From a year ago. Okay. 27%. That's actually a lot. Oh, that's really significant. 27%. MSNBC viewership is down 23% in prime Whoa. time during the same period. Uh, Fox, would you like to take a guess? Probably went up. Yes. Because OAN's been thrown off of every major cable outlet, mm-hmm. and people are just walking away from Newsmax. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, so they're up 1%. So not, 1%. not true that across the board ratings are down. Fox up 1%. Well, yeah, they, they got a sweet 1% bump. Oh, how from, do you like from that? From the right 1%. Yes. yes. Also, uh, you saw this Cracker Barrel story. Yeah, loved the Cracker People Barrel story. People go nuts because Cracker Barrel has decided to put a, a vegetarian sausage on the menu. Yeah. 
Because well, that, that somehow impacts them. I mean, I don't want, you know what? I'm not going to totally <laughs> impugn people. Nutcases, nutcases are going nuts uh, for or cracker, cracker barrel going woke because oh, they have geez. a vegetarian sausage on the menu. It's just, oh, I mean, it's God. like, guys, just don't put, just, just let people eat what they want to eat. It's fine. If you take it so, if you honestly take somebody being vegetarian or, or eat, having a vegetarian option so personally, <laughs> you're obviously, you're compensating for something, right? You're maybe feeling bad about the, what you choose to yeah, uh, choose to right. ingest. So like, yeah, if you're confident in it and you feel fine, just pipe down. You know, I have a deadly shellfish allergy mm -hmm. and I really miss shellfish. So I was at the uh, grocery store the other day and I saw these, um, completely vegetarian crab cakes, mm -hmm. right? So I thought, wow, I sure miss crab. I haven't had crab in 25 years. I'm yeah. going to, I'm going to give it a try. And it was delicious. It tasted nothing like crab, right? but it was delicious in yeah. its own right. And so I went back and bought more. How does that impact anybody else? What Not, do they care what I eat? It's ridiculous. Anyway, no, no reason to stop at Cracker Barrel, though. It's, it's still garbage. Going to take a quick break here, everybody. <laughs> We're listening to Political Misfits. We're on Radio Sputnik. We're live in D.C. We'll be right back with more of your favorite food takes. <laughs> on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm John Kiriakou, here with Michelle Witte. Michelle, uh, while we're in the process of getting our next guest, uh, I wanted to, since we were talking about CNN, I have to tell you about this awesome article on CNN. Mm -hmm. It's an interview with um, Jennifer Coolidge. Jen Jennifer great. Coolidge is a character actress who's awesome. Mm -hmm. She was in uh, um, American Pie, famously, as Stifler's mom. Mm -hmm. And uh, she did she did the Reese Witherspoon movie, the Harvard. Uh, I forget what it was called. Anyway, she's terrific. Mm -hmm. uh, and she said the funniest thing in this in this article. You know, she she played this very sexualized mm -hmm. middle aged uh, woman uh, and her son was kind of an idiot. Uh, but she was at this party in one scene and she sort of pulled a Mrs. Robinson on one of her son's friends. And, mm -hmm. and uh, they connected. Okay. So, being very coy. <laughs> so mm -hmm. she says after the movie came out, and it was kind of a hilarious, raunchy, classic, you know, American comedy. Mm -hmm. After the movie came out, she slept with more than 200 men. She said men were throwing themselves at her because she's Stifler's mom. I love this. I yeah, think this the, is really great. The funny great. thing, too, is I never paid any Jennifer attention Coolidge to her. looks great. She looks great. You know. I never paid any attention to her until that movie, really. Yeah. And I thought, oh, yeah, Stifler's mom. That's really great. So I'm, well, I'm watching the scene now. I keep trying to do the math. <laughs> Jennifer Coolidge is, I believe, 60 years old now, and uh -huh. this was filmed in uh, 1998. I was going to say so at she least been, 20 what, years ago. In her in her late 30s. Wow. Yeah. So like wow. barely even. Okay. Yeah. Bar 
I, I guess thought that's she was military. older than that. Yeah, but I you're thought right. so too. But now I'm looking back, she looks really young. But yeah, absolutely. I su- I support this a hundred percent. I think Fantastic. it's great. Fantastic. We should all be Stifler's mom. That's right. Yeah. I'd love to go out with Stifler's mom. Call her up. I'd treat her right. <laughs> I would. You could probably, you know a lot of people, John. I do. You could probably get an invite. I bet I Get a date with uh, Jennifer Coolidge. And now I I, want you to, listen, if you have to quit the show, (laughs) it's okay. Because I I want this for you. I I bet I know enough people that I could get to her in Mm -hmm. a day. Mm -hmm. Hey, I wanted to say something else. I received yesterday the unlikeliest invitation. Sorry, you left out the, a funny part of this, oh, which is, I? you know, a lot of men, a lot of attention, blah, blah, blah. She said, I uh, I did date younger men after American Pie. I really dated younger <laughs> men for the next 10 or 15 years, which I also support. Not that it like really, you know, whatever. It's not like younger men are mostly pretty boring. Yeah. They're uh, but, <laughs> you know, it's always it's always good to uh, to buck convention. So I, I also support that. Good for her. Make people uncomfortable. Uh, there you go. What else do you want to tell me, John? What other Hollywood news the, do you need to tell me? The unlikeliest invitation of my life yesterday. Okay. I, I got an invitation. It says here, Dear Mr. Kuriaku, we look forward to welcoming you home to the CIA this September. What? Mm-hmm. During this day-long event, you may visit the newly reopened CIA museum and a number of different exhibits, including the A-12 and MI-17 the new Harriet Tubman statue, and the Trailblazer exhibit. You will also be able to tour the Langley Fieldhouse. I don't have any idea what that is. Remarks will be made by the director of CIA and by a special mystery guest. We hope you can join us. Please review the attached RSVP and send to us. Are you going to go? Absolutely not. Why is the CIA? We have our next guest, and we do have actual (laughs) news topics to discuss. But now I want to know, why... Is the CIA in particular putting up a statue of Harriet Tubman? I, I don't have the foggiest I mean, honor, everyone idea. should honor Harriet Tubman, but why specifically is the CIA trying to say, like, I, this is our girl? I guess I could, I could speculate that it was because she provided intelligence to the Union Army. I mean, I guess that that would be my forth. guess, right? Yeah. Although that would be more, oh, well, I guess, well, I was just thinking, is this domestic intelligence? It's kind or of rewriting history, though, yeah, okay, when right, you think yeah, about exactly. it. Well, well yeah. you know, John, if Jennifer Coolidge won't go with you, I'll go. I'll go to the CIA event with you. That'd be really fun. <laughs> okay. I think we have our guest, do we? We sure do. Maybe okay. he wants to go with so her, too. I, I'm going to say that foreign policy used to be, by its nature, bipartisan. Uh, we used to say that, that our differences ended at the shoreline. I remember hearing that when I was in college. That largely changed during the Reagan administration. And now the two parties are openly hostile to one another on foreign on many foreign policy issues right, not ever yeah. yeah iran hmm? forget it mm-hmm. there was an exception to that this week though when at least 26 republican senators and a dozen other senior republicans including senate minority leader mitch mcconnell and former secretary of state and cia director mike pompeo came out in support of that doggone trip to taiwan by nancy pelosi is that, and this is a rhetorical question, of course, is that because it fits into their neoliberal, neoconservative agenda? Meanwhile, the U.S. seems to have turned away from Latin America. I'm excited to ask our guest about this, which may not be a bad thing as a new left-wing uh, president and vice president take office in Bogota. And in U.S. politics, 
The CPAC conference is beginning in Dallas today. Donald Trump is celebrating the wins of a number of his endorsed candidates who won with the help of the Democratic National Committee. So we're joined by labor attorney, human rights activist, and author Dan Kovalik. Dan's latest book is called Cancel This Book, The Progressive Case Against Cancel Culture. Dan, it's always great to have you. Thanks for having me. A lot of questions for you, Dan. We've been talking all week here on the show about Nancy Pelosi's trip to Taiwan. I've either been involved in or following U.S. foreign policy for my entire adult life, and I just can't figure out why she took this trip. First of all, foreign policy, I said this earlier in the show, is the exclusive domain of the executive. Second, the White House and the Pentagon said that they didn't want her to go, but then the State Department approved the trip. 26 Republican senators, as of this morning, uh, have, uh, have come out and said that they support the trip. Virtually the entire Republican establishment supports the trip. What in the world is happening here? Well, I mean, I think this does serve the largely bipartisan agenda of uh, hating on China. I mean, I yeah. think that there is a bipartisan uh, position that China is somehow uh, our number one enemy. And right. I think there's some folks that actually want to go to war with China. And I think that in this case, Pelosi was, you know, serving the interest of those people. Uh, you point, I mean, you, what you point out is an important thing. Look, there, there's actually something called the Logan Act, which makes it yes a crime for for someone outside the executive branch to engage in foreign policy. Mm-hmm. Nation, arguably, what Pelosi do, did would be a violation of the Logan Act, except for I guess the fact that the State Department ultimately approved what she did. So I right. think she ended up having the imprimatur of the executive branch. But it does show there's divisions within the executive branch, right, that uh, I think we see often that the State Department is more hawkish than both Biden and the Defense Department, and they seem to be kind of out in front on many of these types of issues. Yeah, I, I have to agree. What do you think this does for Joe Biden, this trip? The Democrats are saying that this past week was the best week of the Biden presidency, but the numbers don't really show that. And and I'm hearing it from pundits on TV. I'm hearing it from friends of mine. Best week of the Biden presidency. W- was it really? Well, I mean, he, it looks like he's going to have some legislative achievements. So that is something. But I actually think the Taiwan trip, uh, you know, took away from those, you know, really. Oh, I agree. The light away from those, you know, very important legislative gains. Everyone was focused on Nancy Pelosi's, you know, frankly, crazy trip to Taiwan, right? I mean, I think she hurt Biden greatly, and I think that his numbers would probably have gone up a bit, except for the trip. I think most people are just shaking their heads. She's not a very popular leader. I think she's viewed by many as, including myself, as corrupt, mm-hmm. you know, is involved in, in what's tantamount to insider trading. Um, and here she decides to go to Taiwan. Most people, I think, don't understand the ins and outs of whether she even did have authority to do that. Mm-hmm. So ultimately, this was seen by many as just some crazy stunt by her, which it was, and it it, it detracted from, yes, an otherwise pretty good week for Joe Biden. Yeah. Did you want to uh, 
Oh, yeah. I wanted to talk about uh, Dan. I wanted to ask a little bit about something we mentioned earlier in the show, which is the way that the war in Ukraine is being reported and this sort of idea of fact checking on media and social media. Uh, people. I mean, people know what fact checkers are right They're around. Every paper now has its own little one. People are, you know, quite rightly distrustful of some of the things politicians say to them. They're quite rightly distrustful of what randos report on social media. And so organizations have employed different fact checkers, which is a nice, you know, neutral and objective sounding term. Of course, you know, we, we see how it works in action. The Washington Post, Glenn Kessler, is a particularly egregious example of someone who, you know, during the 26, uh, 2016 campaign in particular, like Bernie Sanders would say, guys, the sky is blue. And Glenn Kessler would have a column about how the sky is actually turquoise or aquamarine, you know. Um, well, so now Facebook uh, announced that Facebook has announced in the past that it had partnered with nine fact-checking organizations to manage the flow of information about the Ukraine war on its platform. And Mint Press did a dive into some of those organizations. Uh, they are Stop Fake is maybe the best known, Vox Check, Fact Check Georgia, and a bunch of other names that you may or may not have heard of. They're all certified by the Pointer Institute's International Fact Checking Network. So sounds great, except as Mint Press found, at least five of the nine organizations are directly in the pay of the United States government which is a major belligerent in the conflict. The Pointer Institute itself is funded by the National Endowment for Democracy, and many of the other fact-checking organizations have deep connections with other NATO powers. I mean, and some of the combinations of funding here are just comic, right? Stop Fake is funded by the Atlantic Council, by the British Foreign and Commonwealth Office, exactly. by the British Embassy in Ukraine, and by the Czech Foreign Ministry. It also gets money from the National Endowment for Democracy. And these are, you know, maybe these are guys who are fact-checking that great Snake Island story that turned out to be absolutely bogus. And so, you know, this story, of course, points out that even the fact checkers that are not directly funded by the U.S. are funded by other NATO members or by EU and NATO institutions. And so, you know, again, what does it mean to have fact checkers checking on data on a war in which the party that funds them is, uh, you know, at best an indirect participant? Yeah, well, I mean, I think what we know from the fact checking of these social media groups that, yeah, it essentially— it means making sure that people are uh, consistent with the U.S. government policy. That, that is what's happening here. This is not so much fact-checking as censorship. And I think one of the best examples of that is Scott Ritter, who's mm -hmm. kicked off the Twitter. He's, one, you know, he's a former intelligent, military intelligence analyst. Mm -hmm. uh, he was kicked off Twitter because he's giving a different view of the war in Ukraine than the mainstream media and the U.S. government. Mm -hmm. Uh, meanwhile, he was one of the key people in 2002 who was saying that there were no weapons of mass destruction in Iraq, mm -hmm. knew this because he was part of the weapons inspection team, and he was ignored then by the mainstream press mm -hmm. and kept out of uh, uh, you know key hearings that, by the way, Senator Joe Biden was holding at the time mm -hmm. on the alleged weapons of mass destruction. So again, I think he's a great example of this. At the time— he was saying the emperor had no clothes regarding this weapons of mass destruction claim mm -hmm. was right. 
most of the press was wrong. Um, and now the same thing with Ukraine. Mm-hmm. Um, he's being censored because he is telling the truth, and as far as I can tell, about what's happening in Ukraine. So I think this is all very disturbing. We're seeing the social media outlets as effectively wings of the U.S. State Department. Yeah. And, and that's very troubling. It, what it's doing also is it, it's creating an, an ecosystem that feels huge. You know what I mean? It feels like you're in this you're in this giant space where you're getting information coming at you constantly. I mean, Facebook is an e- enormous entity, right? And yet, you know, so it feels so huge that you can kind of barely see over the horizon of it, but it is in fact incredibly constrained, you know? And it does require an incredible level of of, you know, media literacy to recognize what's going on. And so I wonder how you get around it, right? It, it's a neat trick to bombard people with data, bits of data yeah. from all different directions, right? From legacy media, from this social media platform, from that social media platform. So you really do feel as though you are, um, as though your choices are endless. And then in the meantime, just make sure that every single gatekeeper, you know, adheres to the same sort of uh, narrow ideological spectrum, right? I, I don't know. I, I don't know how you, how you bust out of it. Well, it is very difficult. You have to spend a lot of time doing it, a lot of research, which most people really don't have the ability to do mm-hmm. yeah. to make a living, maybe working two or three jobs. So I do think the dream of the Internet that, that a lot of us had at the beginning, that there would be this flourishing of alternative point of view, I, points of view, I think in the end, that dream is not panning out. Again, for the same reason that it doesn't pan out with traditional forms of mainstream press, and that is because it's controlled by big corporations uh, that generally do the bidding of the government. Yeah. Um, So that's it. You know, so I do think, well, and then they have Google. People mostly search with Google, and now their algorithms, of course, are tightening up more and more, so it's harder and harder to find alternatives views on particular issues. So um, I do think, as you say, the the problem, it's kind of the worst of all worlds. People are under the impression that we have more of a democratic exchange of ideas than ever, but in fact, we really don't. And so I think social media, therefore, plays a very good, well, very effective role at manufacturing consent. Dan, uh, tell us a little bit about your trip to Nicaragua and Colombia. You were invited to the inauguration of President Gustavo Petro and Vice President uh, Francia Marquez. This is an historic time for Colombia. Gustavo Petro is a genuine leftist, something that we're not used to seeing uh, in positions of power in Colombia. And Francia Marquez is not just an environmental activist, but she's the first black woman ever to be elected vice president of that country. Tell us about your experience there. Yeah, well, I'll be going there uh, this weekend, actually, tomorrow, the inauguration Excellent. on Sunday, and it, it is quite exciting for the reasons you say. I mean, this is a sea change for Colombia. They've never had a progressive president and vice president like this ever. Mm-hmm. Last time there was a chance of that happening was 1948. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, with the candidacy of Jorge Gaitan, the Liberal Party uh candidate for president who was assassinated 
which led to La Violencia, in which 300 to 500,000 Colombians were killed in a, in a civil conflict. By the way, it's largely believed that the CIA, which had just been founded a yeah. year before, uh, was behind that killing. So you're looking yeah. at many, many decades in which there wasn't even a chance at this. So it's, I think it is not even not a small miracle that they won. I think that they, you know, they're going to need a lot of solidarity because I do think they're going to be up against huge forces, mm-hmm. uh, a very entrenched and right-wing military that's very powerful, that's backed by the United States. They're going to be up against the United States, which is not going to want to let go of Colombia as their main ally in the hemisphere. You know, right. Colombia is a, par- a NATO partner. Right. For goodness sake. And, uh, you know, the U.S. is not going to want that to change. So I do think that, you know, they're going to need a lot of support. A lot of people talk about Jorge Gaitan and fear, you know, mm-hmm. that, that uh, Petro could end up like that or right. Salvador Allende, and none of us want to see that happen. So it's an exciting time, but it's fraught with a lot of peril as well. Um, do you think that there's a chance that Petro can become this um, this tool by which the U.S. can improve its relations with countries like Venezuela, for example, or Nicaragua, that because the relationship between the U.S. and Colombia is so strong, the U.S. is going to be forced to deal with Petro and to respect Petro and the relationship. Do you think then Petro can help to improve the relations between the United States and these other countries as sort of a middleman? I doubt it. Ah, and I'm not sure how hard he's going to try. I mean, he's got enough problems, going to have enough problems getting his domestic agenda through, which is that he wants to really engage in some very serious redistribution of wealth in Colombia, which is one of the most unequal societies on earth. Honestly, his rhetoric has been pretty negative towards Nicaragua and Venezuela. Really? Why is that? Yes. I think because he has decided where he's you know he's decided to pick his battles and I don't think that's where he wants to go so I don't think I fear that he's not going to take the US on in terms of Venezuela and uh and Nicaragua that he just doesn't feel like that's where he wants to fight uh now again maybe if he makes it to a second term or something he might do that but I don't see in the short run him doing that in fact most of my Nicaraguan friends when I'm like, hey, I'm so excited to go to the Petro inauguration, they're like, boo, because he's always bad-mouthing us. So wow. that's true. So we'll see. We'll just see how all that works out. But long and short of it is I really don't see him as as doing much to improve those uh, relations. Wow. The way, for example, that AMLO is in Mexico. Right, right, exactly. Trying to do that. He is carrying the water for them. Um, I don't see Petro certainly not doing it in the short term. Do you, do you think that we should take the absence of any really bad developments between the U.S. and Venezuela as a hopeful sign? Well, I do. I mean, I think the most hopeful thing is that the U.S. has, you know, sent a team down there a couple times to see if they can right. uh, get Venezuelan oil. I think that is why there's hope. I think that now Venezuela is becoming more important to them. I think they know that— Maduro 
is the de facto and de jure president, uh, that he's the guy they have to deal with if they do want things like oil. And I think that's going to be the saving grace. They're going to have to deal with him, and they will deal with him. And that is going to help. Mm-hmm. Uh, in terms of Cuba and Nicaragua, I'm not sure they feel they need them that much, and I'm not sure there's going to be much of a thaw in relations there, sadly. But I do think Venezuela, because of its oil and because of the growing importance of oil, um, they are going to have some leverage to, to essentially have a relationship with the United States. Uh, the CPAC convention is beginning today in Dallas, but without much of the usual fanfare. A poll released today, Dan, by The Economist shows Donald Trump's approval rating at 33% nationally, and it's only 56% among Republicans. And former White House attorney Ty Cobb told The New York Times yesterday that he believes the Justice Department has what he calls more than enough evidence to bar Donald Trump from ever seeking elected office again. Do you think CPAC will be a Trump love fest like it usually is, or will there there be a chance for some other Republican to break out of the pack there? Well, I think there'll certainly be that chance. Um, I think DeSantis is someone, for example, who would get a good hearing there. But I still think Trump will be a popular figure there. I uh-huh. Uh, you know, I think the conservatives only have so many people to turn to. I mean, uh, what did he say? At a 36 percent? 33. Approval. And and 56 among Republicans. Yeah, there were 56 among re- Republicans, I guess, isn't terrible. I mean, and again, the 33 is, I guess, hovering around where Biden's at as well. I mean, there isn't that. You know, I think there's a general feeling of, of lack of confidence in our leaders, and there yeah. should be, you know, yeah. whether they be Democrat or Republican. I mean, the three that come to mind are Biden, Trump, and Pelosi. I mean, they're terrible. Um, And it's weird. You know, we're now being run by octogenarians in a society that, you know, kind of worships youth so much. It's very strange. So, but in any case, I I think Trump will, you know, he'll have his supporters, you know, and he he always, you know, he never uh, got much more than something like 38% of yeah. even when he was president. I think when he got to 40, that was a big deal. Yeah, that was newsworthy. Yeah. <laughs> I think you're right. Uh, I've been asking a lot of our guests this week about the Democratic National Committee's uh, policy of spending millions of dollars to support the candidacies of some of the most radical pro-Trump people running for office all across the country. The idea is that they are so radical that they can't possibly win a general election. I personally think this is a very dangerous strategy because, you know, in 2016, Donald Trump was considered to be too radical to be elected president. Um, What are your thoughts on this policy, Dan? Is it a risk worth taking for the Democrats? I think it's insane. I mean, you raised Donald Trump. We know that the Clintons maneuvered to have Trump be the guy. Yes. Same exact reason. Yes. He was the guy they could be. Well, guess what? They were wrong. And and, and you, it's always uh, a bad idea to try to make something worse uh, in the hopes that it will be defeated or someone mm-hmm. will be defeated. And we see this throughout history where people will try to put in a poison pill in legislation or whatnot, and the legislation passes anyway. So now you used to have a poison pill in it. Uh, it doesn't make sense. It's a dangerous game to play. This society is very polarized. 
there are a lot of ultra conservatives, um, and it, it, you know, it just guarantees you're going to have some real right wing people in office, and I, I don't think that behooves anyone. You know, I, you said uh, uh, DeSantis a, a few minutes ago, just before the show started. I read uh, a newspaper article about this mandatory seminar that DeSantis is forcing all Florida teachers uh, to take part in. It's a three-day seminar uh, in which they're instructed that they are not permitted to teach that George Washington and Thomas Jefferson owned slaves, that they're being specifically instructed to say that both Washington and Jefferson were anti-slavery. And, uh, you know, coupled with an article in the Times this morning about how the U.S. is facing a, a full-blown crisis in the number of teachers that we have here in the country. Teachers are just resigning in droves, not just because pay and benefits are bad and they have to pay out of their own pockets for all their supplies and, and things like that, but because of silly nonsense like this where they're being forced to teach things that just simply are not historically true. Uh, there was another thing about DeSantis, too, saying that, and, and this was halfway through the show, I just got a breaking news thing on my phone, that DeSantis fired um, one of the state attorneys in, uh, in Florida because he disagrees with her woke uh, decisions on prosecutions. So if... If the Republicans are looking for a Trump without the bombastic attitude, but somebody that's just as much an extremist, I think they've got their guy in uh, in DeSantis. Yeah, no, I, it is scary. I think DeSantis could be their guy, and I think he has a chance of winning yeah. in 2024. Uh, so I think we should be very afraid. Yeah, I mean, I think it is scary that what he's doing, as you say, I mean, he's he's— Literally trying to force teachers to teach untruths would yes. be uh, anathema to, to, to all of us as people who care about a free society. I mean, it's just you're entering like 1984-type territory there. Um, I think it does underscore, though, a country who has lost its belief in itself. Yeah. And— um, maybe for good reason, because of its, you know, very checkered history. But, um, and now people are trying to essentially force feed people so that they may have some, mm -hmm. some faith in country. But I think that is being lost. And I think you're seeing that in very many ways. And, um, uh, yeah, it'll be interesting to see. I, I, I don't know if it'll ever be gained back. Um, yeah, I wonder. Because of the divisions in our society. That was the voice of labor attorney, human rights activist, and author Dan Kovalik. His latest book is called Cancel This Book, The Progressive Case Against Cancel Culture, and have a safe and fun and productive trip. We'll talk to you when you get back. Much. Take care. You're listening to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik. We'll take a short break and come back, so stay tuned.
to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm Michelle Witte, here with my co-host, John Kiriakou. We want to talk about the post office for yeah. a sec. The post office and also this new bill that may or may not get hung up now by Kristen Cinema. She's taking on the role of the heel from Joe Manchin. But first, the post office, and frankly, because I you know, saw these headlines going around about the post office having to shed uh, 500,000 jobs, no, 50,000 jobs, 50,000 jobs, jobs. got to get those zeros, right? And, you know, people, people saying, oh, well, Donald Trump, you know, uh, Joe Biden didn't want Donald Trump to destroy the post office, so he's just going to do it himself. Uh, And of course, you know, under Donald Trump and his appointee to be Postmaster General, Louis DeJoy, the post office was presented as under mortal threat. Right. Which was, I think, fair enough, because Trump did say the service should be privatized. People, however, are now pointing out that DeJoy appears to be continuing merrily along his postal reform way, right? And a few days ago, we saw these headlines that the USPS is going to drop 50,000 jobs to try to reach a break-even point and return to financial health. And anytime you see, you know, stuff about breaking even— when you talk about a government agency that provides a much needed service, I think, okay, this is a case of misplaced priorities. Sure. But the context of all this conversation could be actually some good news about the post office that we have missed in the last couple of months. And so joining us to help sort out what is actually going on with the post office and do we have to get out the pitchforks and go to defend it, or has it actually kind of settled down? We have Robert Hockett. He's Edward Cornell Professor of Law. He's a professor of public policy at Cornell University. He's senior counsel at Westwood Capital. He's a fellow of the Century Foundation, and now he's going to be our post office whisperer. Thanks for joining us, Robert. Hey, guys. So great to be with you again. Thanks so much. Welcome back. So, you know, headlines might have you think that the post office is in peril, that is about to start hemorrhaging staff, and that, you know, the the privatization that the previous administration had wished for might be continuing apace under the Biden administration, except that I missed this back in April. Joe Biden signed the Post Office Reform Act, which eliminated the uh, 2006 era mandate that the post office, unlike other government agencies, pre-fund all of its employee health and retirement benefits. Right. And this was one of the major issues uh, warping perceptions of the post office's uh, profitability or financial health. And so with that in mind. How should we view these uh, headlines about the post office? Is it still sort of on a slow boat to privatization? Or did the Biden administration actually achieve something meaningful uh, that didn't get much attention here? Yeah, I think, I mean, there are probably a few things to say about that, Michelle and John. I mean, to to begin with, um, it's worth keeping in mind as as a matter of sort of perspective that we have this sort of absurd requirement in place that Congress could always change. But we have this absurd requirement in place in the first place that has to do with those misplaced priorities, as you referred to them a moment ago, Michelle. And that is that, you know, we do not publicly fund the post office. We require it, in effect, to be Mm self-funding through the sale of stamps and postal services and other sorts of things that the post office uh, charges money for. So, in effect, we then force it to operate kind of as if it were a private sector business Mm -hmm. with a profit-making imperative right from the get-go, which is itself absurd, because, again, the purpose of the post office isn't merely 
to deliver a service that somebody like UPS or FedEx might deliver as well. Um, but it's really to make sure that people in various parts of the country who might not ordinarily have access to things like FedEx or or, or UPS, precisely because it's not profitable, uh, to be sort of integrated into and united with the remainder of the country, right? Mm -hmm. It was a, a binding or unifying force, the whole idea behind the post office, uh, which was established at the founding of the Re Republic itself. Mm -hmm. So begin with that fact, um, and then add in the fact that, as you noted a moment ago, Michelle, that for a long time, at least since 2006 until last April, the post office was also required to pre-fund um, employee pensions in a way that private sector firms are not and in a way that other government agencies are not. Um, combine that together with the fact that there's just much less demand for a lot of the things that the Postal Service used to do, thanks to electronic payment services and uh, deliveries from uh, actual uh, retailers like Amazon and, and, and so forth, there's just a lot less use of uh, the post office than there used to be, you know, to sort of send checks to pay your bills or what have you. Now people use online payment systems and so forth. Mm -hmm. So a, a huge revenue drop, along with uh, an extra cost burden that was imposed on it, combined with this absurd requirement that what is effectively a public agency or entity or service is required to operate as though it were a private uh, um, entity with shareholders and has to turn a profit or at the very least break even. And you kind of have the makings of the difficulties that the post office was going through before. Um, Against that backdrop, the development of last April that dropped that sort of pre-funding requirement has turned out to be helpful. Um, but, you know, there are two things. First of all, there's a, there's, there's a remaining question as to whether it's helpful enough. Mm -hmm. And secondly, you know, there's a question as to whether we should be celebrating it all that much, because after all, what it does is it now puts its own employees at greater risk than they were before, mm. simply in order uh, to sort of make it look a little bit more like a private sector business. Yeah. Uh, so I feel kind of ambivalent about that development in April. I mean, it's it's good news in one sense, but it's it, it's you know reinforces or reminds us of a backstory that is bad news. Uh, on the other hand. Well, so what is the situation now at the post office? Because it, I mean, is it truly that you know? <sighs> It's just sort of Republicans are going to do something quickly that Democrats are going to allow to happen slowly, right? The, the post office was perceived to be, um, you know, in Trump's crosshairs, who, you know, explicitly said we should privatize this. You know, I don't I don't think it should be privatized for the very reasons you said. And of course, you know, God, oh, God knows we don't need uh, institutions that are explicitly supposed to unite the country these days, you know. But, um, you know, I, I don't know how different it is to accelerate that process and make it explicit if what happens in a subsequent administration is simply, uh, you know, al allowing processes to continue that can only result in the failure of this agency and its privatization. So, so what is the state of the post office now? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I think uh, what I would be inclined to do is, is rather than, um, you know, pointing to any particular administration, including the Trump or the Biden administration, maybe to point to Congress and the way that we've got the postal service sort of set up to begin with. Mm -hmm. um, and the reason I say that is that Basically, the, the Postal Service is a little bit like the Federal Reserve. There are board members who have you know, staggered terms, and they are appointed by presidents and then uh, confirmed by the Senate. And mm -hmm. traditionally, there are four members of that board that are appointed by the president, who, by the party at least, of the president who's in office, and three uh, who are appointed or have some other uh, party affiliation, right? So the 
normally you'd have four Dems and three Republicans on there right now. And they appoint the postmaster general, right? It's the board that selects their, that's, in that sense, it's unlike the Federal Reserve Board, because, of course, the president also chooses the Fed chair. Here, the, 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 the general, so to speak, is actually appointed by that board. So administrations have very little immediate control over what the Postal Service does. Mm -hmm. And that means, in turn, that the regime that governs it, which is congressionally mandated or determined right through legislation, is the real culprit here. Now, as to the degree to which or whether um, you've got Democrats sort of just sitting back and watching a slow demise that Republicans were basically willing to accelerate to be more transparent about, my guess is that that is an, a- an accurate characterization of the attitudes or the stances of a lot of the Democrats uh, in Congress right now. Um, and of course, we know where the Republicans in Congress are on this sort of thing. So in that sense, I think your criticism, or at least your suspicion, is probably true. Um, but I just I would probably say that it's more accurate to say that it's uh, a matter of what Democrats in the Congress are doing and thinking than it is about what the administration is, 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 is doing or thinking. That said, if I were Joe Biden, I would be, you know, a, a, a bit more out there uh, in the public eye calling attention to the things that Louis DeJoy has been doing. Mm-hmm. Um, notably, for example, the decision not to uh, replace the aging fleet of postal trucks and vehicles with electric vehicles, but instead uh, to replace it uh, 80% with uh, gas burning uh, vehicles and only, you know, 20 percent with electric. That, I think, is a real travesty of anything, any any part of the federal uh, vehicle fleet as large as the postal fleet is really ought to be all electric. The feds ought to be leading the way on this. And even if Biden himself can't, doesn't have the authority to make that happen, it seems to me he should be using his bully pulpit to sort of call attention to that, because mm-hmm. my guess is that DeJoy would be forced to change his tune on that if there were enough of an uproar. Let's uh, talk a little bit of economics here for a minute, and uh, in particular talk about things that are made in America and buying American, because I noticed you you have been sharing some reporting on an economic indicator that doesn't get a ton of attention, and that's the uh, domestic market share index, which fell in the first quarter of this year to 64.9%, which is the lowest market share and the largest import share since the data series was launched in 2005. And uh, I noticed you've been sharing some opinions that this is actually really important, that a successful economy shouldn't be losing in its home market. And so I wanted to ask you to talk to us about this indicator and what this slump should tell us. Yeah, I think it just it further confirms something uh, that lots of uh, other evidence has been sort of pointing toward, and that we've talked about before, of course, and mm-hmm. that is that you know we are not a country of makers in the way that we once were, and so we're much more a country of sort of burger flippers and service providers, which is fine mm-hmm. up to a point, but because the pay scales in industries like those that we retain tend to be much lower than in the manufacturing sector. And because U.S. economic security and the economic security of especially those at the who aren't at the top of the income uh, and wealth ladders, uh, is also imperiled uh, by basically offshoring our productive capacities. When an indicator like this sort of continues to be, you know, sort of 
bad. Uh, and when it's not only that, but showing itself to be deteriorating further or getting worse, it just means that, you know, the, the sort of source of most of our problems these days is itself a source that is not yet being mitigated, let alone reversed, mm -hmm. right? And we've really got to redouble our efforts, it seems, on that. Now, you know, the, the current administration is sort of talking a good game on this to some extent, but, you know, the, the efforts that we're undertaking so far are still surprisingly humble. Mm -hmm. uh, and the earlier administration before that talked kind of a good game on it, but basically did nothing. So yeah. it kind of, other than, you know, sort of pick uh, pointless fights with China that with, with un, sort of not very well thought through uh, <laughs> sorts of uh, tariff policies. So it seems to me that this just underscores once again the need to make a, a coherent national project of reindustrializing, but with, of course, environmentally friendly industrial technologies, uh, and to sort of move big into the industries of tomorrow that are going to be both eco friendly and high paying manufacturing jobs. Um, instead of um, dealing with inflation by, you know, taking money away from people or, you know, uh, engineering a larger, higher unemployment rate, we ought to be dealing with inflation this way too, right? Mm -hmm. If we were producing more, making more, you would have, you wouldn't have too much money chasing too few goods. You'd have a lot more goods that we would ourselves be producing for mm -hmm. that money to chase, so to speak, right? So I just, I, I see the, I see the indicators just yet another, you know, bit of evidence of this, this point that you and I have been, you guys and I have been talking about periodically for the last um, year or so. Right. Yeah. I mean, that was that's pretty much what I expected. Just thought here's a new here is a new way of, uh, you know, categorizing this data and, and you know, it, it, illuminating this issue. Well, let's talk about the efforts that this administration is making. Um, they it seems like maybe they, they took a page from from your book or they, they heard you advising them The the uh, Democrats are calling this bill that uh, seemed actually to have better chances at the beginning of this week than it does now toward the end. But they're calling it the Inflation Reduction Act of 2022, which I know you've mm -hmm. been saying these, this kind of investment is counterinflationary. We should be messaging hard on this. Well, there you go. You got it, Robert. Um, what do you make of, of this bill, right? There's some, some bad with the good. Uh, what do you make of its... Um, you know, its ability to to correct some of the ills that you have just diagnosed. And then I wonder if you want to talk about, you know, uh, the role of Kristen Cinema, sort of taking taking on the, the villain cap from from Joe Manchin when it comes to holding up this passage. Yeah, so I, I'm, I am thrilled, of course, to, to see the administration both, you know, pushing this and advocating it in the particular way that they are, even even down to the somewhat gimmicky naming or, or branding, right? Because while the, while the principal thrust of the act or the principal sort of motive or purpose behind it isn't simply inflation reduction, that's certainly the most salient likely effect of it. When we kind of remember that salience is partly determined by what lots of other people are talking about or what they're sort of obsessing over. And since so many people have been obsessing over inflation, then if you can point to a realistic counterinflationary um, uh, attribute of a particular piece of legislation, you might as well flaunt it, at least as long as that continues to be a, a point of obsession. Uh, and I do think it will legitimately um, provide counterinflationary forces uh, to the economy. Not that those are, to me, the most important things to worry about, but insofar as people do worry about them, 
the bill does do something about that. It also, maybe more importantly, from my point of view, and, and my you know, sort of personally, I find what's most salient about it, the fact that it really is appreciably going to boost or encourage a great deal more investment in some of those aforementioned uh, industries of tomorrow, notably solar, notably electric vehicles and batteries and the like, and combining that then with the CHIPS Act, which is focused on semiconductors, uh, it really does, I think, amount to a significant down payment on essentially a return to sort of full-bore industrial policy in the cause of a greenification of the economy and a reindustrialization along eco-friendly lines of the economy that should help labor, should help working people immensely. Um, that said, it's very, you know, these are very humble first steps that it's mm -hmm. taking. I mean, first of all, it's much smaller <laughs> right, than yeah. the original uh, bill was to be. But it's not a trivial first step. It's a half a trillion dollars, which before 2020 would have sounded like real money. Um, and furthermore, my own view is that if it begins to sort of basically you know, reap benefits quite quickly, if we begin to see the benefits within the first year or so, it'll just whet the appetite for, uh, of Congress members to do more of this. They'll say, oh, gosh, it didn't turn out to be a disaster after all. In fact, it helped. What if we do twice as much in another bill now or five times as much mm -hmm. in some other bill now? I'm optimistic enough to believe that that could very well happen. And I'm especially, you know, I'm thrilled by the fact that there are some Republicans who are beginning to kind of get the message on this now, too. There are what you might call developmentalist Republicans of the Marco Rubio stripe. And you've got then some very progressive Dems who are willing and able to cross the aisle and work with some Republicans, people like Congressman Rokana of California, for example. And I can see a lot of future collaborations between uh, those kinds of Republicans and Democrats on further industrial policy measures of this kind when this one begins to prove its mettle, which I think it'll do pretty quickly. Mm -hmm. And what about uh, cinema as spoiler? What do you make of uh, what she's she, she hung up on the corporate 15% corporate tax rate? Is that with the latest beef? Yeah, and, and apparently she's got troubles with or she's got problems with the um, the carried interest loophole. She wants basically the hedge funders uh, and the private equity firms and, and those sorts of operators to kind of continue to pay less in taxes than literally you and I uh, oh likely pay for challenge on. Um, and that's disgusting and, and, and horrid. Um, I think there are two, you know, two, I think, likely outcomes here. One, is, at least I say two possibilities, two possible outcomes, one of which is going to be, I think, the one. Um, either she relents on it and just basically, you know, contents herself with having made this an, an opportunity to sort of get some attention to herself because she seems to be sort of attention craving in the way that Joe Manchin was seeming before, or they compromise with her and they say, okay, we'll take that out just to get this thing passed. And we'll come back and take another bite at the carried interest loophole of hedge funds and stuff later on in another piece of legislation. Mm -hmm. um, I'm of course, hoping that the first is what happens but if the second is what happens, I do think that getting something like this passed in some form will you know, heighten the likelihood that we have a, a real majority of progressive types, or at least Democrats, in the Senate after the midterms so that then we can just stop giving any attention at all to cinema, and then we could take another crack at that loophole and close it. Mm -hmm. Stopping paying attention to Kristen Cinema, man, that sounds really good. Yeah. <laughs> I, I look, look forward, forward to, to being day. able to do that. <laughs> <laughs> that. That was yeah. Cornell University's Robert Hockett. Robert, thanks as always for helping break this down for us. Thanks so much, Michelle. Thanks, John. Thank you. With you guys again. We'll talk to you again soon, I'm sure. John, we have just a couple last headlines here to yeah. uh, to 
make sure we get out before we hit the end of our time. I don't know if anything's burning a hole in you. I yeah, have. Was, I'm sorry to interrupt you. Go no, right no, ahead. No, no. I just, I just have a little mystery for you. Uh, someone, I think it was Matt Taibbi, was uh, asking people about the most mysterious and underrated or uh, underreported stories of the week. Ah. Um, and there were a couple that I heard of, but I hadn't heard of a half a billion dollars worth of copper going missing in China. Oh, good grief. I mean, I, I don't know what this is. At the first blush, I'm just going to guess it's just, um, I don't know, people like slowly and steadily taking little bits away. I don't know. Sure. But apparently, uh, this is in Mining Weekly. A group of Chinese companies are investing why a commodity storage site in northern China is holding only one third of the copper concentrate they were financing. Um, Traders from a dozen mostly state-owned firms gathered in this city this week after becoming aware of the missing material following concerns into the borrower's finances. Wow. So maybe they have been selling off this copper that yeah. they were supposed to be holding to alleviate some financial troubles. Yeah. 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 Uh, so that, that seems interesting. The value of the missing copper is about $490 million. Uh, they are supposed to have— so they are supposed to be holding 300,000 tons of copper concentrate at this depot, but there's only 100,000 tons, according to Mining Weekly's sources. Yeah. Good luck with that. Yeah, this I is think something that's that probably been, long gone. I don't think yeah. you're going to find it in a different depot. It's something that we've been struggling with in American cities for many, many years. Mm -hmm. But this isn't really taking copper off the uh, railroad tracks or whatever. Right, right. right. <laughs> 100,000 100, tons of copper. I uh, I was very interested in a story. Uh, this morning about an interview that Marjorie Taylor Greene gave yesterday uh, to Newsmax, which thankfully nobody saw because <laughs> nobody watches Newsmax. Mm -hmm. But she said that she would be honored to be Donald Trump's next vice president. Right. So something for your nightmares. I wonder if he'd run with Marjorie Taylor Greene. <sighs> I mean, I still don't know that he will. Mm hmm. I don't know. I think it's possible. I think he actually does respect her and he doesn't think she's nuts like the rest of the country does. I I could see it. I could see it happening. Hey, you you highlighted for us too a a, a story about um pythons in Florida. I've got a cousin in Florida who is an avid hunter. Mm -hmm. Posts constantly on Facebook. Mm -hmm. One weekend it's it's red snapper, and the next weekend it's wild boars, and the next weekend it's it's pythons. He's gonna well, make his bones in Florida. Uh, I'll tell you. And now pythons are actually—they're so big that they're actually eating alligators. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they do this. That. They this—it is the almost the kickoff of the annual uh, yeah. Florida Python Challenge. That's right. Where snake hunting professionals and amateurs come to South Florida to hunt the Burmese python, the most concerning invasive species in the state. Unbelievable. Um, yeah, yeah. It runs August 5th through August 14th. So listeners out there, if you want to go and try and catch some giant snakes, uh, you still have time to get down there. I guess they don't necessarily have to be giant by the time you catch them. Uh, yeah, I mean, well, it is. it is... It's not you know, good started, to have pythons sort of taking over the Everglades. Yeah, they're they're eating all the birds mm -hmm. and the birds' eggs, which is worse. Yeah, um, they're eating fish uh, because they can swim too. These doggone pythons. Mm -hmm. uh, now they're eating even alligators. They're so big. Yeah, some of them listen. can be well. They they said in the piece that some of them can be seventeen feet long. Actually, if allowed to, you know live out there in the wild, they can grow to twenty or twenty five feet long. Are you telling me? 
They've got snakes out there this big. This big in America. We're not talking about the Amazon here in Florida. And the reason we have these things Mm -hmm. is because people had them as pets. They got too big. And so they just let them go. Did you see that? Did you see that story? I cannot remember the state it was from. I want to say Pennsylvania, but it could be wrong about how uh, a man was attacked by his pet snake wrapped around him and was Uh, killing him. Last week. Police officers were called to the house and they killed the snake. They killed the snake. Didn't save the man. He oh. died. He died later. Oh, he did. Yeah. Oh, I didn't see that. I saw that a, a guy was being strangled by his pet python, and a fireman who responded to the call um, cut the snake in half oh. with a with a, a chainsaw to get him off the guy. Yeah. And uh, and the guy sued the fire department for killing, oh, a, for snake. killing a snake. Oh yeah. no. <laughs> My dog couldn't kill me if she tried. Uh, you noted this earlier, John. It looks like four officers in the Breonna Taylor raid yeah. uh, are being charged with uh, civil rights, right? Civil rights abuses. Yeah, uh, for violating her civil rights. Yes. This is this is what sometimes happens when state charges are levied against um, somebody, usually a police officer. Mm-hmm. And the police officer is acquitted. Mm -hmm. In this case, these cops weren't charged in the first place. The state said that they didn't have enough um, evidence to charge them with a crime. The Justice Department said that's nonsense. And so they charged them with violating her civil rights. Now, the reason why this is so important is because the violation of someone's civil rights can carry a penalty of, I think it's 20 years. It might even be longer than 20 years. So this is a serious case. Mm -hmm. This is something that these cops ought to be worried about. Also, I mean, I know it's probably more important that the U.S. is apparently planning to declare a a monkeypox health emergency. But have you been following your boy, John Hinckley, on Twitter? Uh, Oh, no, I I didn't even realize he was on Twitter. Oh, yeah, he's on. John Hinckley's on Twitter. (laughs) But it's sort of sad. Like he keeps yesterday. I think it was he was saying, well, my show at whatever such and such venue was was. Announced and canceled, yeah, canceled on the same day. Yeah. Like, I'd really just like to come out and play my music. I yes. don't know. I feel like let John Hinckley, let John Hinckley perform. Yeah. Like he, how long was he, how long was he in the psychiatric hospital? Oof, 1981 uh, was when he shot Reagan. Uh, yeah. Till now. I mean, I feel like he did his time. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, wh- whether jail or psychiatric hospital, right. I personally would feel no call to prevent John Hinckley from performing somewhere. I don't yeah. know. Am I am I wrong? No, I think you're 100 percent right. I mean, it's like canceling uh, Dave Chappelle. They canceled Dave Chappelle's show the other day. Uh, it was a stand up show mm-hmm. uh, because he's he offends, you know, minorities mm-hmm. and he's so provocative. It's a comedy show. Mm. If you don't like the comedy, then don't buy the ticket. But also John Hinckley, unlike Dave Chappelle, was crazy. Yeah, he was crazy. He was crazy when he did what he did. Yeah. So should he... Literally certifiably insane. I mean, he was found to be crazy. That's and why he was in... Uh, what, I forget the name of the hospital. St. Mary? I forget the name of the hospital. Uh, St. Elizabeth... Uh, St. Now we both forget. Yeah, I've forget. poisoned your brain. I'm sorry. I think it's uh, Yeah, it just seems... It just seems uh, unfair. Yeah, I agree. Hashtag I Team Hinckley. <laughs> I wouldn't necessarily go to a John Hinckley concert. I would. I've heard he's actually okay. Yeah, sure. But, you know, the, the guy should uh, have the right to, to perform. Well, that's what, that's what we're going to end this show on, right? Let John Hinckley perform, for the love of God. <laughs>
I want to say thanks to all of our guests, as always, and our producers and engineers. And on behalf of John Kiriakou and me, Michelle Witte, thanks to you for listening. We'll see you tomorrow. <laughs>